2: Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That is Dr. Matt Woolley. You're fidgeting in your chair. We haven't even started the program.
1: We need new chairs. KSL needs to buy new chairs. Seriously. This is borderline torturous. Well...
2: Well, we're going to. Josh is going to send that to the boss. It and won't do any good. You're usually late, and so normally I've
1: got the <laughs> bad time. seat. No, you just don't know what time I'm supposed to be <laughs> here. Normally,
2: I've got the bad seat, and I switch you. And I told our guest Catlin, I go watch. Doctor Matt's going to come in and sit on this couch, on this chair, and he's going to be mad. Yeah. Sure enough, you sat on it. They're horrible. Yeah, they they suck. Yeah, uh, but we've got a great show for you today. Uh, I'm back. Doctor Matt's here. So we were golfing, right? I wasn't golfing. I was actually in a sales boot camp in uh, Fort Worth, Texas. All of that sounds terrible to me. It it was actually pretty cool.
1: (laughs) A sales boot camp in Texas. None
2: of that that sounds good to me. We've left on a Wednesday. We got back on a Thursday. We flew into Fort Worth, went straight to the conference room, sat there for four hours. I learned how to talk to people, learned how to ask for the deal. Uh, I learned a lot of great information. This is part of my title uh, company that I work for.
1: Did they really just teach you how to manipulate people?
2: No, it's not about manipulating. It's about building a relationship, Dr.
1: Matt. That sounds manipulative. No, <laughs> it's, no it's, a, it's
2: about building a relationship and being able uh, to ask for the deal. And uh, it, 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 so I've learned a lot of great stuff. I will say this.
1: I do enjoy working with a salesperson who is honestly wants to just help me find what I need. Yes. And isn't pressuring me. But there are certain stores in utah i will not shop in anymore because they are the opposite i i won't bring up any names you know like rc willie or anything like that we're gonna have to cut that okay <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah but, but that's what i don 't like the i don't like the high pressure sales, but i 've had a few people like uh, a few people like one of the cars I bought not too long ago. It was awesome because they were just wanting to help me know what I needed and help me find the right fit and it, I really appreciated it so if that 's what you learned at the boot camp that 's awesome that's what we learned and then so
2: there was something interesting that happened because uh-huh. normally, when you go away on a sales boot camp with a bunch of salespeople. Is that a normal thing you do you, when you normally go away? You no. You do that a lot? No, but when you do that, <laughs> okay. usually what happens afterwards is everybody congregates down by uh, the bar. Yes. And then they go out. Go and out after. You, yeah. you know. And so I was a little bit nervous, a little apprehensive about what was going to go on. This is my first trip with all these guys. And uh, we go back. Do you down. know them very well? Uh, I knew two of them. Two of them were for our state. And then there was from Oklahoma, Fort Worth, Texas. Oh, so this is like. There was people from all over oh, the, I didn't the really. country okay. there. Okay. Right. And so we go there, and then we wrap up. They go, okay, hey, we'll meet down at the bar for happy hour because uh, other states have happy hour, and that's where drinks are half price. Uh, a Didn't, lot of Is that not a thing in Utah? No, you can't have happy hour in Utah. What? You, you that's a law? Yeah, it's a law. You can't have discounted drinks. Really? Yeah, because it I promotes know drinking. That. Yeah, no, you can't. Oh, if you've noticed, there's no bars in Utah that have Could happy hour. You do hour. an
1: unhappy hour and charge twice as much. It's every day. <laughs> that's that's every day. <laughs> it's okay. unhappy hour. I just I want to experiment with that yeah. law.
2: And so uh, we, they go happy hour, and then we'll go to dinner. Uh-huh. And so I go down there, and everybody's drinking, mm-hmm. and uh, not everybody, but majority of people are. And the waitress comes up. And she goes, hey, can I get you something to drink? And I go, no. And she goes, are you sure? And I go, well, if I drink now, um, you're going to have to kick me out. And she laughed, and I went, I'm serious. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so, and then I had to explain to everybody in there. I said, hey, you know, I'm in recovery. Uh, I'm coming up on four years, uh, and here's all the story. And it kind of broke the ice. And then nobody pushed it after that. But it mm-hmm. was a, it was a little bit weird because it, it, I'd made a joke in the conference room about me being an alcoholic, and most people just laughed and thought I was just joking. Just joking.
1: Yeah. <laughs> but I was serious, yeah you
2: know what I was like I would love to, but I'm an alcoholic and then everybody laughed and I'm like- yeah. Okay. And I just, I just let it go. Yeah. And then when I got there and I was like, no, I'm serious. I'm an alcoholic. I can't drink.
1: But that's your style to handle tense moments is yeah. use humor, right? Yeah.
2: And so then after the happy hour, we went to dinner and I got stuck next to this lady who I enjoyed our conversation with. And we were talking about me being an alcoholic. And then inevitably, whenever you're talking to somebody about your troubles and what you've gone through as an alcoholic or a person in recovery, mm-hmm. they always know somebody or they know a story mm-hmm. and they want to find out more information and that's what this podcast is about was opening up a conversation about addiction more importantly about recovery and so we just had a nice conversation about recovery and she was talking about her brother's uncle or you know something you know something like that and it Mm -hmm. it was wonderful and so that was my first trip in four years going out with a bunch of people who wanted to do work in the day and party at
1: night now did they would did they party pretty hard
2: no, it was group? it was weird because I was walking back with a guy from Utah who doesn't drink because uh-huh. uh, he's LDS. He was like, "I've never seen a, a conference like this end at nine o'clock."
1: Oh, okay, <laughs> and we just, so they so, weren't that rowdy. Of no, a crowd. it wasn't that right.
2: rowdy. But coming up in October, we're going back out uh, to Austin. Okay, and uh, Austin City Limits is going on at. The oh, time. that's right. Yeah,
1: yeah. And so it's it, it, it's gonna be a little the bit the same group of people going out there,
2: but even more.
1: Yeah, and so it was kind of cool. Um, well, let me ask you this, though. So I, I sometimes have people ask me, like, you know, Casey always sounds so positive and upbeat about, you know, his recovery, but does he ever really struggle? So I'll let you answer that. I mean, is it ever uh, a dark moment or a temptation? Um, especially, I mean, it sounds like this group, most of them didn't even really know you. You know, I it's different. You're a public figure here. If you were out, you know, drinking on Main Street, people would you'd be recognized but out there maybe you know
2: you know you know, people ask me that all the time and to be honest with you I don't have the temptation I don't feel like that that's something that I want to do or that I need to do to do it as a matter of fact I look at it and I just go why would you do that Do you not remember the last four years and all you've gone through to get where you are and all the blessings that recovery has given you? Why would you waste it for one beer? And that's where the trick is. It wouldn't be for one beer because that's not how I work. One beer is not good enough for me.
1: Uh, You're all or nothing. Yeah. And so, no. So that's a reframe. So I I, I thought I could... uh get you to give a reframe. So thanks for doing that. And that's in cognitive psychology, it's we think about something in one way and then we might ask ourselves, okay, but what's a different way I could think about this? And so what you sort of just modeled there was the idea is like, well, I guess I could have a drink, but I know that's going to turn into a bunch. But the reframe is a different way to think about that is it's going to lead me to losing all of this that I've built up and, and, and the person that I've become. And it's not worth it. So in that moment, you can reframe yourself out of a tempting moment. Now, for you, I don't think you've had that real strong temptation, but you know most people do. Most people who are going through recovery will have low times where they feel like maybe I should go back to my DOC. Maybe that would help me have a little relief right now. But I think
2: the thing that made me such a good addict, if there's such a thing, Also makes me such a good person in recovery, and it's my all-or-nothing mentality. Yeah. And that's what I want to do. Now, a little insight. We record these podcasts on Thursday. True. In three days will be my four-year anniversary.
1: All right. Woo!
2: Of when I lost everything, or so I thought. Yeah. I really thought I lost everything. But in reality, I found everything that matters to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's been a four-year process of me doing that. And I've worked hard. I've had good days. I've had bad days. But in the four years since I quit drinking, I've been blessed with so many wonderful opportunities. I've been able to appreciate authentic interactions with people in the public, with my kids, with my girlfriend, with my ex-wife, with my family, which I would have never had that opportunity had I kept drinking. My life was going down and it was going down fast. The reality is, is because of that accident, this could be my fourth year in prison. Yeah.
1: I mean that that is one way.
2: You know, and looking at at maybe six more, I don't know what it would have been. Had I killed somebody, Mm -hmm. I don't know where I would be. And so the reality is the day I thought I lost everything was an actual the day I found everything. Everything that matters to me.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to look at it. I'm proud of you. You I know that it was a big struggle for you up until that point, but you did that all-or-nothing shift in a positive way. And that you're right, that kind of a personality, we see it here in the studio almost every week with somebody who – was all in and now they're all out. We've had people in here who didn't have two pennies to rub together,
2: but yet found a way to get $400 to keep their habit going a day. The,
1: yeah, I said they I, lived
2: <laughs> in boxes behind dumpsters, yeah. but somehow managed to find $500 a yeah. day to for their heroin habit.
1: No, I've I've done the math so many times. I'm like, I couldn't afford to have it like that. I'd be living. I guess that's why they they're homeless a lot of the time, right? Is because you everything you can scrape together just goes to feeding your addiction.
2: And it's that all or nothing mentality, right, and so right. they go for it. And so if there's a will, there's a way. And you addicts use that as a way to stay sick, and to say uh, dope sick or, or or get their fix. Mm-hmm. But that same can apply for your recovery. If there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And all the difference is, is whether you want to channel your energy for good or for bad. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I can't boil it down to every addict to why they do what they do. But the reality is, if you don't choose to get better, you
1: won't. The all or nothing mentality, when applied in the right direction, works miracles. It, it totally changes lives. And I think that's what you're saying. The last yeah. four years... Um, Your life has become everything you hoped it would be
2: everything that I thought it was before the accident. I mean, were you
1: delusional? Do you think do you think that's a type of delusional thinking you thought things were wonderful when they really weren't
2: delusional and naive? Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. Na- naive that I thought this is what it, it meant. I was checking all the boxes. I was doing all this, and and, and it was it was well, empty. It was empty. Your, it was an empty life. In it your was adult an empty life. life
1: yeah. you hadn't had a long long term sobriety at any point in your adult life, so you didn't know anything different.
2: Never had long term sobriety. Yeah, maybe had three months at a time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but never like this. I never knew who I was. I never knew who I wanted. I didn't really have a purpose or a mission that I really believed in. I was just faking it as long as I could to figure, and I didn't get a chance to figure well, out who I was. And
1: I think we buy, you know, we buy a certain line of reasoning that, like, if if you have the job, if you, you know, you're checking all the boxes, like you said, then that is what life is supposed to be. But I think a lot of people get there and they go, really? I mean, Like, I'm supposed to be happy. I don't feel as happy. And so that encourages more use. A hundred percent. So
2: what I'm saying now is that everything that's in my life is in my life for a purpose. It makes sense to me and it gives me something that makes me whole. And that's what I really strive for on a day-to-day basis is how can I be of service? How can I make my kids proud? And how can I keep this going? That's pretty much my rules for life.
1: Do you feel like you have that conversation with yourself on the daily?
2: My ego wants to tell you yes. Yeah. But truth is, not every day. No. But I try to. I try to ground myself and remind myself how things are going and where they've been and who I want to be. And
1: let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. This just popped into my head because I had a conversation earlier in the week with somebody who is not quite as far into sobriety as you, but far enough. And he was he was telling me he can tell that he thinks more clearly now, like he feels like his ability to, like, logically work through problems, come to solutions like he can actually feel his brain working more efficiently. Have you have you experienced that? A hundred percent. Back in the days, my
2: mind was cloudy. It was cloudy a lot of the time. And a lot of stuff that I relied on was stuff that I'd been using for years and years and years. It was a bag of tricks that I knew how to get to. I remember when I was golfing with my dad or my buddies and we were out there drinking uh, about on the 10th or 11th hole. I would start telling jokes and they'd be like, bro, you've been doing this for 12 years, man. You got to get some new stuff.
1: You know, but, they, were the, they were the same golf
2: jokes all Yeah, the, the same time, golf yeah. jokes or the same stuff. And so I would have to find new people that I could use those on because my head wasn't clearly. I wasn't thinking clearly.
1: I love that. Instead of getting new jokes,
2: you've Found new got people. new people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, have you heard this joke? Yeah. Okay, then oh, I'll yeah. find someone out. Yeah. And, then, and when a new person would come in, I would get them first. And my friends would be like, oh, here yeah, we go. Here we again. go again. Same yeah. old show.
1: Yeah. But I think that's cool. I mean, I, I think there's all the social benefit, but I think people forget get you know whether it's alcohol or other drugs you're poisoning your brain and you're not allowing it to work at its full capacity and you know it was uh it was just a cool experience as a therapist to have this person describe to me um it was they were sharing an epiphany they they it was a real moment of clarity for them that they could think on a higher level and problem solve on a higher level and he was so happy about it he was just so Really just happy to know that he could be a better version of himself. And I, I think that was a beautiful thing. I appreciate, you know, in my job having people share those things.
2: With Over me. the four years uh of my recovery, I've had more than a dozen times where I've had those moments of clarity where I went, yes. It's just a reaffirmation of that I'm doing the right thing because it was just like, okay, Yes. Now this yeah. makes sense, you know, you or if something it. went bad. It didn't go really bad because I didn't have alcohol there to compound it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's all alcohol ever did was compound every one of my problems. For sure. And so, hey, we've got a great show for you today. Uh, we're really excited because we're talking to the first person who's ever been on this podcast who says their DOC is marijuana. First one. First one. And we've had a lot of people where marijuana has been their introduction into uh, substance abuse. That's very common. And you'll also hear people all the time who go, you can't get addicted to marijuana, man. Marijuana is not no. addictable.
1: If, is that a word? Is that a word? No. But that was so perfect of somebody that would say that. You threw in man and, and you made up a word. That is just fantastic. I love it. You get the part. All right. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> Addictable is not
2: a word? It's no. going to be for okay, LA. Cool. I'm going to use it. But her name is Catelyn Larito. It's like Dorito with
1: an L. Yes. How are you?
3: I'm good. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Uh, we've got a lot of, to talk to you about. I think she has the best smile of anyone we've had on the show in a long time. <laughs> and
2: what's amazing is you're going to go to our Facebook page and we're going to show you her intake photo when she entered Pinnacle Recovery to get help with marijuana. We're going to find out more about her story. Stick around. You're listening to Project Recovery.
4: Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night.
0: Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do.
4: When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent. It was I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome back to Project Recovery, the podcast that's addictable. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. He's he's also the one that corrects me when... uh, I get out of line. Uh, I I'm not sure that's out of I think that's we're creating a new a new phrase. I love it. Our guest today is Catlin. Don't say it Caitlin. Yeah. Uh Larido.
3: <laughs> yes, Yes. All right.
2: So now we teased a little bit before we took a break that uh, mm-hmm. you're the first person ever to be on this podcast whose DOC, which means drug of choice is marijuana. Yeah. Crazy, right?
3: I mean, I guess so. I've heard I've heard since I've gotten out of treatment, I've heard of more people going in to the same treatment center for the same reasons.
2: But we're going to find out more about that in just a second. But where does the story of Catelyn begin?
3: So I was born in California and raised there pretty much until I was nine. And um, my parents got divorced when I was young. And um, I guess I moved out here when I was nine. And then I was living with my mom and my stepdad and my two half siblings and um, was traveling Back and forth every other weekend to spend the weekend with my dad
4: in
1: California. Right, every other weekend. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a long. I mean, I assume you flew. You didn't drive yeah. that, did no. You? Oh.
3: Yeah, so flying unaccompanied minor. What as was that like for you as
1: a kid? Was that <laughs> well, scary or was it fun?
3: I think as as a kid, I had a lot of fun with it because it was kind of something kind of a that cool thing unprecedented, to do. or you know, it was it was cool. I didn't have a lot of friends that were doing the same thing, and um, I guess. You're After, the only
1: third grader with frequent flyer miles,
2: yeah, probably exactly. Yeah. So, you know, Doctor Matt's going to want to know: Was the divorce uh, a bad divorce? Was it a good divorce? How did you take the divorce?
3: So they divorced before I could even remember. I think mm. it was. I think my mom said it was around two. I was two years old, and um, they they don't get along, or they've never really gotten along. I think that it was it was nice having my stepdad as kind of like a buffer in between those two communicating or did he take that
1: role pretty well like sometimes a step parent does play a nice buffer role to be able to communicate between two parents that struggle
3: yeah I think that there was a lot of animosity but between between them more so I don't want to throw under the bus but from my mom's from my mom's side and she kind of like she uses humor as a way to kind of mask that a little bit but I understand that.
1: Casey knows a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, I think a lot of it kind of carried on into my anger issues cuz when you're told that you know you're just like your dad.
1: Ooh, that's a that's a tough one. Yeah. Hey, parents listening. Note, note yeah. to self, don't do that.
3: Yeah, don't don't do that cuz yeah. it's it's like even if you're kidding, that's still half of who I am. Well yeah. so Freud
1: <laughs> talked about jokes and he got a few things right. One of the things he profiled for a while were were jokes, but, but those aren't really jokes, are they? Like like it sounds humorous and it's sort of you know sold as a joke, but when you listen to what the person's saying it's like it's biting. Right. right so there's a grading undertone to what it's like the people who go
2: i don't want to be racist but well then do not then finish just that fin- sentence yeah. just be done, do not right? finish yeah. that yeah. sentence mm-hmm. it's like they're, they're giving you a uh, like an out and you know this is but in, but in reality well, you go no they're it's are justifying
1: their yeah. racism in that case but yeah that's tough as a kid because children need to be treated as individuals and not negatively compared to like a you know a, a ex-spouse or something so that right. was probably tough yeah.
2: but mm-hmm. catelyn you find it you finally ended up living in uh, park city utah
3: park city yes yeah. so i went to school i went to school out there from fourth grade till was it at sixth grade and then i spent a year in california with my dad and that was that was due to just my mom and i clashing and mm-hmm. it's that's when um i think a lot of the depression which for me My depression manifested in anger more than anything else. It wasn't like I was...
1: I'm glad you bring that up because that is a really common misconception that depression is, you know, sadness, stay in bed, low energy. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's pretty easy to show visually. So that's what makes it into the TV shows and the movies when we want to show someone's depressed. Mm -hmm. The reality is young people, and especially men, but men of all ages, but especially young people, uh, irritability and anger and sort of an agitated energy um, are really common manifestations of depression.
3: Yeah. I definitely experienced all of those things as a kid. I was very angsty, angry at the world.
1: And so you decided, or maybe your parents decided it's time for a change and send you yeah, back Yeah, it was one of those California. things where it was
3: like, I'm just going to go live with dad. I want to live with dad. And she's like, you know what? I've heard enough of this. You're going to go live with your dad for a year. And. Yeah. That, unfortunately, it didn't work out. It was, um, I love my dad. I'm very close with my dad. And he he was doing his best as a single parent, trying to manage a business that he had started while also having a kid who's starting at a new school, um, a new community, trying to make new friends. And
1: Was that junior high? You did- yeah, junior out. high. So that's, that's a big switch, leaving your community and then... going to California and starting junior high and Mm -hmm. all the stuff that goes along with being in junior high. thats a stressful time. And I would say, uh, you know, in retrospect, it's easy to criticize. So this isn't a criticism, but a lot of parents do what your parents did. Instead of trying to understand and address the underlying issues of why you're angry, it's more like, well, we'll just move you to another house. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's and those, we, we hope those big changes make a difference, but they don't usually. How did your anger and depression go?
3: I think that it was more so just a lot of isolation and sadness during that year because I I just felt alone. I didn't have, you know, I had a couple friends here and there, but it was, it was so different going from being in a space where I've known all the kids since fourth grade. We've gone through every grade together and, and small town, comparatively, yeah. right? To Orange County, and it's...
1: What part of Orange County?
3: We were right by Cota de Caza.
1: Okay. I was... When I was a kid, I lived in Fullerton. Okay. So, the Orange County can be a little crazy.
2: I can yeah. imagine. But you only lasted a year there. You said you were very angsty. Yes. And uh, eventually, it led to you coming back to Park City, Utah.
3: Mm-hmm. So, I came back here. Um, I was going into eighth grade. So, I did eighth grade and ninth grade, and then you go into the high school.
2: So, at any point, uh, your angsty preteens and teen years, did you experiment with alcohol or drugs?
3: Yes. So, I was first introduced to pot. I think it started with pot, and then um, just. Drinking here and there, but I really fell in love with weed when I was in high school and I think it was, it was the whole process of it, you know, rolling it, smoking it and finding it and hiding it. It was the whole ritual. Yeah. The ritual of it. That I really liked. And Plus it's a
1: rebellion, right? Like I could just tell by the way you're looking when you're talking about that, it was sort of like, oh, this is my secret thing. Yeah, this is like my thing. Right. Name. And yeah. I can rebel. Mm-hmm. And so many teenagers. I mean, that's actually one of the arguments for decriminalizing things is, is that it takes away that fun, <laughs> uh, for lack of a better term, of, of finding it and being a, being a sneaky kid. Yeah. Did you ever get in trouble for it
2: with the cops or high school or anything?
3: No, I didn't. I think there was always the suspicion among like the teachers and the staff at the high school, but that was mostly because I was hanging out with the other stoner kids. and
2: You could have been a little paranoid.
3: Could have been paranoid. <laughs> it could have been a side effect. Well, of the I mean, we're talking about
1: Park City, so I think yeah. she wasn't the only kid in school. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
3: But
2: you don't end up on a podcast because you never get caught. Something <laughs> usually seems to have to go awry.
3: Right. So... I would say my senior year of high school and then going into my first couple of years in college, I really started partying where it was um, – and I was also pre- – I left this out, but I was prescribed Adderall in, in high school. That was something that I'd, I feel like I'd completely manipulated my way into getting that prescription and um, I was partying with So alcohol, somebody told you Adderall, you had
1: ADHD – Attention problems. Someone
3: or, gave me an Adderall, and I, I was you like, "Say you
1: have ADHD.
2: You
3: you give it can it. go get it? That's yeah. what I. So, that's what I'm wondering." Mm-hmm, someone, I, I tried it from a friend, and I was like, "This is this is it. Like I'm gonna be able to. I'm basically a certified genius when I'm on this drug." <laughs> 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 and that's what everyone thinks, right? And so, um, that just allowed me. That really opened the door for me to party longer, harder. And
1: were and you involved in other things in in high school? High school is kind of a, a one of the psychological developmental tasks is affiliation. Mm-hmm. You know, we connect with certain people during those teenage years or groups or ideas.
2: Are you a jock? Are you a member of the Hellfire Club? Or right. Are you like yeah. chess guild? Think
1: Breakfast Club. Yeah. Right. And so so Which,
2: you go back to that movie Breakfast Club. Yeah. Each one of those people in there represented a different group on, in high purpose, school. on purpose. Right. So, yeah. so
1: John Hughes wrote that movie on purpose to highlight each of the cliques because those were the personal identities, immature personal identities of of, t- of the typical teenagers, right? right? And so that's a, but that's such a classic movie because that's what we all go through. Mm-hmm. My question is... What table did, would you be sitting at? Yeah, what table would you be sitting at? And, and just tell us a little bit about that.
3: So I would probably be sitting with the guy who wears leather.
1: John Bender. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Um, it, it was kind of, so I always, I was always good in school. I kept my grades up. I did all my homework on my own. I managed that for the so most you, part. part and of then, your
1: identity was being a good student.
3: Right. But on the other side of that, it was running with the boys and smoking as much as they're smoking, keep like, it's the whole that
1: little competitiveness want to keep up with the i want to keep up and tough
3: yeah i i would just i would consider myself a stoner so so the
1: so the the parking lot crowd the the stoner crowd that was more your group you didn't you weren't in the orchestra or that kind of stuff
3: i didn't I, i okay so i got a job when i was 14 and so i worked consistently from that point basically until now i've i've always been employed what Somewhere. was your
1: high school first job when you were 14?
3: I worked at a Native American trading post store on Main Street, which was awesome and Main fun. Main Street, and, Park City. Yeah. Yeah. Meeting a lot of different walks Do you Yeah. Celebrities there?
1: come in and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So
2: you're prescribed Adderalls. You're hanging out with the parking lot crew. You're mm-hmm. getting good grades, but you're smoking more marijuana. Yeah. Uh, than yeah. you probably should
3: uh-huh.
1: well it sounds a little bit like you Casey where yeah. it, where like you know the if I'm I'm gonna out drink you or I'm gonna out smoke like it was competitive right yeah for yeah sure. that was your sport
3: mm-hmm. <laughs> and the drinking really started taking a turn for the worst it was it wasn't drinking for fun anymore it was drinking to get obliterated and I was that person who would black out start fights you know end up crying at the end of the night. And the Adderall made it so that I could just continue to consume instead of whereas someone who wasn't on it, they would probably be sick and be pass done out the, or die and, Yeah, and be done for the night. And I would just keep going and it was, it would end in chaos every single time, every time.
2: So at that point, does anybody in your family or your circle of friends go, Hey, Katlyn, uh, you might have a problem here.
3: So, in college, my first year of college, I fell into a group of girls and they were, they partied hard too. And uh, they, they pulled me aside and they, they suggested that I don't drink hard liquor anymore, that I should switch to beer, which is something that's talked about in the big book, where it's like you start substituting one thing to see if, well, maybe if I drink this way, I won't black out. Or maybe if I tried this brand, I won't black out. And it was like inevitable. So, so the group of
1: girls that, Party hard, <laughs> yeah. Had to pull you aside yeah. and tell you to dial it back a little,
3: right? But that,
2: the alcoholic brain—it's weird because people will tell you that it's like, well, I only drink clear liquor, or I only drink yeah, brown. Yeah. Liquor, There's all sorts of myths, you know. And, and you'll, you'll see somebody who's like, well, I'm fine until the tequila comes out, and uh-huh. then I just then change personalities. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. but it is—it's just the justification, the rationalization of how you can still keep drinking without having those kind of consequences. Yeah. So did you switch to beer?
3: I did for a little bit, but it was just, I mean, it didn't matter. It's just, I'm just going to drink more beer until I feel the exact same. Liquor is quicker, right? That's what they say. Yeah. So I think I moved away from hanging out with those friends and I was kind of just trying to find my people and I turned 21 and a month after I turned 21, I got a DUI. Ooh. Yeah. And I wrecked my car. I crashed into another car right right downtown Um, and there was a family in it. In the car, and thankfully no one was hurt, but that should have been the wake-up call. You would, like, looking back on it retrospectively, it's like that could have, that could have been the point where I was, you know, coming to terms with the fact that, hey, I might have an issue with substances.
1: Or you could have been in prison.
3: Or I could have been in prison.
1: Why do you think, looking back, that that wasn't the wake-up call that it could have been?
3: I think that... It was almost an excuse to go harder for me, which is it's it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any logical sense. But now it was like now I don't have a car so I can drink as much as I want in the vicinity of like the walking distance from my house because I I was living right downtown. And so I had the liquor store I was like a couple blocks away. I had all the bars downtown were, you know, same thing, a couple blocks away. And I was just.
1: I wonder if part of it was your competitive nature, because you're right, it doesn't make any rational sense on the surface level that that, that you would go harder mm-hmm. after that, but I think sometimes, because I've heard this before, people sort of, they're like, I made a mistake, but I can drink, maybe not harder, but better, like I can be a better drinker, yeah. like you can't, that wasn't, that. that I'm not going to go out with that as a failure, because I can overcome this, instead of overcoming it by going into sobriety, that's mm-hmm. overcome it as in being a better drinker. I wonder yeah. if that was part of the mindset because that competitive uh, addict nature is kind of like, I'm not going to lose.
3: Right. And it also just, my self esteem was shot. And I thought that was the end of my life, basically. Like, I just threw it all away in one night. Now I'm someone with a DUI. I always looked at people with DUIs like, how could you? And that's just. That's the worst thing you could possibly do, and it, I end up being is. that person. It is. It is. Yeah, it definitely is. And it's the most
1: selfish thing you can do.
3: It definitely is, for sure.
1: But you're you're right in in the sense that we judge other people, right? right. Like um, I I sure when I was a younger person and had less world experience, I looked at people that were homeless and thought terrible things about them. Get a very, job. Very judgmental things yeah. about right. them. Uh, same thing with a DUI. That's sort of an indication of, oh, your life's out of control. You can't handle life. Mm-hmm. But then once you become a person who's homeless or you become a person who has a DUI or you, you get fired because of your drinking, those sorts of things, all of a sudden you realize, oh, this happens to me. This
3: could happen mm-hmm. to anybody. Right.
1: It does change your mindset.
3: Yeah.
2: And changing mindsets is what we're talking about here with Catlin here on Project Recovery. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Casey Scott, that's Dr. Matt Willie. Our guest today is Catlin, and uh, she's talking about her early years of substance abuse where uh, you got a DUI, mm-hmm. and instead of that being your rock bottom, you took it as a challenge and uh, kind of turned up the party and even more.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, it was like all the seatbelt came off. I just was like-
1: Off to the races.
2: Off to
3: the races, yeah.
1: Well, I see that sort of- Alcoholic logic. Well, I don't have a car now, yeah. <laughs> so I can't, you know. So I might as well just drink as much as I want.
2: And I'm right. stuck downtown, and anywhere I turn, there's a bar, a liquor store, and those seem to be the only fun things to do. Exactly. And how
1: were you? Did you stay in college? Were you able to? No, no. Tell us so what this,
2: happened there.
3: this is the. That was the point. So I got the DUI. I was going to Westminster, and the public transportation goes right there. And when you're a student, you get free. Public transport. So I could have easily no kept going. No excuse not to go. Right. And I only had a year left. I did all three years and I I did pretty well. And then what initiated me dropping out was the embarrassment of public mm. transportation. In my head, I thought that people were going to see me taking the bus to school and they were going to know that okay. she got a DUI. And she screwed up her life, and now these are the consequences. And for some reason, that would, I just couldn't handle that. I, it was so shameful in my head. I don't know.
1: No, I I, I think, yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking back on it now, you can maybe say, gosh, I should have
3: I you know, just, just been yeah. tough and
1: gone. But when you're, when you're in the middle of shame, shame is such a horrible experience, mm-hmm. and it is so um, – depressing of your positive behaviors like it just destroys the sense of who you are so I could definitely see how the the shame of that or the fear that you'd be shamed by others would stop you so how did you tell your parents you weren't going to school
3: I think I phrased it in a way that was like I'm just gonna take I need a break
2: i gonna take a year off yeah I'm gonna get myself clean
3: it's been like seven years
2: I want to figure some things out yeah and did you what did you do with that year
3: I partied And I was working at the comedy club downtown and that's, you know, when you're in a club environment, it's like you get off work and the first thing you do is you go to the nearest bar and just start slamming shots. And that that was my life for a year. And uh, then I got into a relationship and it was a six-year-long relationship. And so that was basically my life was just working the day job at the, you know, the desk job. And then at night, I would go to the comedy club downtown. And throughout all of that, I'm smoking during the day. You know, wake up, smoke, go to work, get off, smoke, go to my other job, get off work from there, drink. And
1: So at what point would you say your DLC became weed? Because it sounds like up to this point in your story, alcohol has kind of caused you the most trouble. But at what point did marijuana start to become like your main drug of choice?
3: I would say when COVID hit, it really just shook everything up. The club closed. I wasn't going into work anymore. I was working from home. So it was just the easiest access thing. I mean, I had my work desk and right around the corner, I had my bong. And so it was just right there. And alcohol wasn't fun for me anymore. I wasn't I was I was I was getting off of work and I was just taking shots. It wasn't like I was like I'm going to have relax and have a beer. It was just I'm going to take 3 shots and sit here and wait and then I'm going to smoke and get, you know, cross-faded as they say <laughs> and just sit in my house and do nothing. And so that's what I did.
1: I think that is such uh, one of the tragedies of of COVID other than COVID itself. I get it. Um is that it encourage so much substance abuse mm-hmm. um and we're
2: starting to see the the, the outside mm-hmm. of that you know what i mean i mean yeah we I mean,
1: the the effects of that mm-hmm. um so many people got into the habit of doing exactly what you're describing mm-hmm. is their home and you know five o'clock becomes three o'clock becomes noon and you know you can people figured out pretty quickly i can sort of do this job and be drunk or be high yep. And I've the, got nowhere to go the boredom, the isolation and the depression that comes from that. Mm-hmm. People tried to alleviate that with substances, mostly alcohol and marijuana. Yeah.
3: You know?
2: So you, so you, you switch from mostly drinking to mostly smoking. Yeah. And, uh, and the, I
3: think that was really caused by the anxiety that I started experiencing.
2: Was the anxiety caused by covid in the unknown and the world's kind of changing and stopping?
3: Or were you so getting anxiety from the drinking? I don't know. And Dr. Heather from Pinnacle would say it was the marijuana, long-term marijuana use. Sometimes it happens where it just has this switch where all the things it used to do for you, it'll start doing the opposite. And We
1: call those paradoxical effects of
3: marijuana. Okay. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good
1: word. It becomes the opposite. <laughs> paradoxical. Instead instead of relaxed, you become anxious. And I can tell you that doesn't happen once in a while. That happens a lot. People mm-hmm. who use marijuana regularly over a long period of time often become anxious not just you always hear the stories about oh i got paranoid a couple of times this is different this is it It creates an anxiety disorder and in fact if you look in the dsm manual about disorders there's you can you know anxiety induced substance abuse disorder
3: you mm-hmm. know yeah so and i my body just couldn't handle drinking like it it used to my gi system was just taking a hit i mean i i was like losing weight i couldn't really i had no appetite whatsoever i had to force feed myself and i was just i wasn't i wasn't sleeping and i think alcohol just it was not it wasn't doing anything for me anymore it was making me feel more out of control and dealing with the anxiety all i wanted to feel was in control
2: And marijuana was doing that for a while
3: Yeah, I thought so. I didn't put two and two together that my anxiety was caused by the marijuana. So I was treating my anxiety with more marijuana, which was causing more anxiety. And so I would treat it with more marijuana until the day that I called Mary Kay at Pinnacle.
2: Now, at what point or how much marijuana were you doing? Uh, Because I think people would want to know that, you you know, I mean – because when we've had people on here they go when i've been drinking i was drinking a half a gallon a day yeah. or i was drinking 3 gallons a week I, and i think people would be interested to know how much marijuana were you smoking
3: yeah it was about an ounce a week at the end which Can is quite guess... a bit
1: that's quite a bit and i would say that's important but maybe what's even more important is you were smoking every day
3: right all the day, whole time. Every day
1: every day all day, day. and yeah. so that's that's the, the the actual overall amount is important, mm-hmm. but that regularity of just having the, all the chemicals that come with it, it's not just the THC, but everything else that comes with mm-hmm. the weed and whatever strain you were smoking, uh, that sort of thing, every single day, all day, your brain isn't getting a break.
3: Yeah, it was it was such a cycle that I was caught in. I couldn't. At the very tail end of it, when I was only sleeping for two hours, I would be, I would wake up, and go sit in my kitchen, and the only, I distinctly remember the only time I felt relief was when I would exhale, when after I would take a, a hit, and then I would exhale it was the only time that I didn't feel the anxiety, and then right after it was like a wave was washing over me where I just couldn't I didn't know what to do.
2: Where was your boyfriend during all this?
3: He was trying his best to. He, I, I he he didn't know what to do He didn't know how to approach it because I was in such a state of panic all of the time because I was just trying to make sense of where this anxiety was coming from why can't I go to the grocery store anymore without freaking out why were my hands sweating all of the time like why am I losing weight where why can I eat properly when, and, when this
2: was all going down at any point did you think about contacting a therapist or a doctor or, or kind yeah
3: of- I, but I think there was a lot of fear. Around that, too, because I didn't know what they were going to say, <laughs> like if it was going to be like a 5150 <laughs> type of I think a lot of or... people do. So
1: 5150 is being admitted to the hospital against your will, right? Mm-hmm. They can pink slip you for 72 hours and determine if you're safe, you know. And so I think a lot of people who are in those states become so anxious that they are also paranoid. Would you say mm-hmm. you had some paranoia?
3: Definitely had paranoia. And that will sure.
1: usually stop a person because then your your worst fears seem very real, like they're going to lock me up or I'm going to go to jail. This is an yeah. illegal substance. The mm-hmm. way You know, all that kind of stuff.
3: Yeah. And I remember spending a weekend up at my parents just in panic and they didn't know what to do and sharing with my mom that, I'm scared of my own thoughts. I was having some serious suicidal ideations that have, had never been as real and loud as they were at the tail end of my use. Like, it was to the point where I asked my, my boyfriend to get the guns out of the house because I didn't trust myself. Like, my body, I just I felt such discontent that I couldn't fathom living another day in the state I was in.
1: And that is such a good description of when you realize your own thoughts, your own mind seems foreign, mm-hmm. like it's working against you. You yeah. feel scared of your own mental processes, which we usually feel like, hey, that's who I am. But if it can feel like your brain turns on you, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. How about um, with this amount of regular smoking, all the anxiety, the suicidal thinking, would you also say that you lost touch with reality at times, like hallucinating?
3: Definitely. I recall like hearing things, not feeling like in my own body. It felt like I was, I don't know. Like, I don't know how to describe it. It was just, it was like... On the verge of psychosis, I just couldn't. I mean, if you were hearing
1: things, it probably was psychosis, right? (laughs) Yeah, and psychosis means we're having, um, you know, hallucinations. uh, So hearing, seeing, smelling, feeling things that aren't really there. Delusions are, you know, inaccurate thoughts. So it sounds like you're having some of all of that. Mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of times, people who don't know much about mental health, they think, oh, someone with schizophrenia—that's kind of scary. It must be sort of a genetic thing. And it's like, well, you know, that's scary for that person. They're generally not dangerous to anyone. Um, And and it it would be very tough to have psychosis. But more people are treated for, we'll call it self-induced psychosis through substance abuse than are treated for schizophrenia. Did you know that?
3: I didn't know that. Yeah,
1: more people cause their own psychosis through drug use Mm -hmm. than people who just inherit it naturally. And so, you know, there is, again, a diagnosis for that, which is substance-induced psychosis. And so that is, you know, you were at a pretty fragile place neurologically. You were having all of the neurological breakdown symptoms that one could have, but it wasn't from meth, you know, it wasn't from opiates, it Mm -hmm. was from... Marijuana, the drug that everyone nowadays likes to say, is the cure for everything.
2: Right. Don't panic. It's organic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. If it rhymes, it's okay. That's what,
2: that's what the hippies say. Uh-huh. You, you know, but you spend a week with your parents up in Park City. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're telling your mom you're scared. You don't know what to do. You've instructed your boyfriend to get all the guns out of the house.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: You're at a tipping point, a breaking point. Yeah. So what do you do?
3: So my mom... Was like I, I don't know what to do with you anymore. Like you need to decide: Do you want to go to uni? Is that going to help you? And you know, I told her, I'm like, there's nothing they can do. It's not a detox. Like I don't need to. I can't. You can't just detox from marijuana in the same way that you can detox from other substances, where you go into a facility and they
2: put you on the brian yeah, and that's what they did. And, and when then I they went put you back uni. out, right? Yeah. It's
3: Like there was something deeper going on. I felt, you know, I felt like I was losing my mind. And it was just terrifying. And so I went back to my house. Um, My boyfriend was kind of in the same boat of like, I I don't know what to do. Like, I don't have any answers for you. And I think that's really what I was doing was I was searching for an answer to why, like, what was causing these feelings. And um, the morning that I went to Pinnacle, I just woke up and it was like something in me was like, it's either you do something about it or we're done here. And I decided to do something about it. So I got on the internet. My mom found Pinnacle. I gave Mary Kay a call. She's an angel. And she got me in the same day. And I started my journey to recovery, in recovery.
2: And you joined uh, Pinnacle during the height of COVID.
3: Yeah. I went in, the day I went in was November 30th, 2020.
1: Yeah, that was... Sure. Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna just take a little side canyon here, okay, here for a second go. and um and make a plug for uni, or which is now Huntsman Mental Health Institute, that um, you can go there and they will help you kind of find where you need to be. Yeah. So just I, I think a lot of times people get a little afraid of a psychiatric facility like, oh they're gonna keep me, it's gonna be against my will. Yeah. But they do have a great receiving center there where people can come in. In any state, suicidal or if they're struggling with substance abuse or mental health issues, you had all three Mm -hmm. and they can sit and talk with a person, help them understand where they need to go. So they may they may say, hey, actually, this isn't the best place for you. This other place might be the best for you.
2: And that's actually how I found Pinnacle, because that's the recovery center I went to. I went there for detox off of alcohol and it was Ativan mm-hmm. and Librium and somebody from Pinnacle came over and talked to me. But in my head as a parent and, you know, when you're sitting there with your parents and your boyfriend, they don't know what to do. Uh Uni or Huntsman Health.
1: Huntsman Mental Health
4: yep. Institute. Uh, HMHI. is
1: the safest place. It's a, it's a great place. And I would say even uh, a trip to the emergency room calling 911. Nowadays, we have the new 988 number. Which is kind of like nine one one emergencies for mental mm-hmm. health, and here in, in Salt Lake through uh, the University Health Care we have eight zero one five eight seven three thousand, which is a twenty four hour um, you know uh, crisis line. And again, there are a lot of phys- there is we. This is such a crisis, starting with the opiate crisis in the nineties. It's taken thirty years, but now we finally do have. Some options for people, because I think when you're in that state, you're like, well, what,
3: what, what do, I do I need do? help for? Yeah, is it the, is even, it the marijuana?
1: Right. Is it the suicidal thoughts? Is it the psycho? Like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately, there are a variety of things. But um, I know that I'm, I'm a fan of Pinnacle now because of you, but mostly because I know they, they saved my friend Casey.
4: Yeah.
2: I need to ask about how you received at the house, because I remember when <laughs> I was in the house. Uh, and I went to my first meeting and I've said this on the podcast before. I mean, I was in there with people who were on meth, heroin, opioids, mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. And I thought I'm not supposed to be here cause I'm, I'm here for Bud Light. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and I don't, I don't belong with you guys cause mm-hmm. I, I mean, that's really how my head was thinking. I like I, I'm here for Bud Light. Yeah. You know, and I can imagine, you know, you're sitting in those process groups and you're like, and they're like, well, what's your, what's your DOC? And you're like marijuana.
3: Right. There's so much stigma in the recovery community. That's crazy, right? Around that, I was gonna say, yeah. did they give
1: you a hard time? Like, oh, come on. Like, are you, you shouldn't I even did, be here?
3: I did get that a couple times from some of the other clients. Um, not, not the ones that I ended up like finishing out with, but some of them that came in and then left. It was like, oh, that's it. That was the attitude. Was yeah. like, that's yeah. that's it. And it's like, yeah, that's it. But we both ended up in the same s- yeah. spot, so it yeah. doesn't really matter what brought us. Right. To the breaking point, it's it's the fact that we all ended up in the same, in the same space wanting and to get better.
1: You don't need any more validation, but just to validate what you're saying, yeah. there is more and more research coming out. I've read several articles this, just published this year about psychosis and marijuana mm-hmm. and how anybody who might be predisposed to any mental health issue, anxiety, depression, anything like that, if you are regularly smoking marijuana, you're putting yourself at such a high risk for not just exacerbating your own mental health issue, like getting more depressed uh, or getting more anxious, but actually creating psychosis, which would be one of the worst experiences I think a person could have. Yeah. So when people, that's just ignorance, Mm -hmm. understandably, because people uh, for decades have said it's it, you know, it's OK for you. And now we have uh, it's medicinal. It's medicinal. And, and, and I'm and not going to
2: argue that the benefits there, of it there may be. There may be. But gonna, I'll I'm
1: be honest with you. The more and more that it's out there, I think the less awesome people are realizing, at least people in the tr- in the healthcare are realizing uh, it doesn't really do everything that you think it's going to do for you. And so it may help with some things. And so if you're a listener who's using it and it's helping you, that's fine. I hope mm-hmm. you're doing it the right way. But just understand it is not uh, without risk. Right. It is a drug. It's, it's a drug like any other that can put you yeah. in, in one of the worst situations of your life. Yeah. So what was your turning point uh, in Pinnacle that uh, made you think that,
2: okay, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to figure this out?
3: Yeah. Um, so I think just working with Eddie and the rest of the clinical staff there and coming to an understanding that. The life that I was living before was not the best that it was ever going to be because I think I really got stuck in that mentality after I got my DUI and I was just using and I was making good money and I could support myself that this is how, as good as it's going to get. It's, just, it's not going to get any better. And so going into a treatment center, talking to the, a lot of the staff there and some of the people that have been in recovery themselves and recognizing that as long as i'm willing to put the work in i can make a life for myself even tenfold what i previously thought was the best it was going to get you know
1: yeah it's a it's i think that's your depression talking right Mm -hmm. you were probably like well i'm supporting myself and i'm making good money and i guess this is it this is you know this is adult life i'm over i'm in my 20s i guess that's what it's going to be like (laughs) and that's sort of that sort of negative pessimistic even if it didn't feel overly pessimistic it's it's certainly self-limiting mm-hmm. and depression is very self-limiting we kind of think all oh, this is i guess it can't get any better right can i
2: ask you about the 12-step rooms um because you yeah. would like to use the 12-step but I you're, do. you're not really an alcoholic you're right marijuana
3: right so that was a whole come to jesus moment i guess for me was finding my sponsor and working through the first couple of chapters and having those questions of, I don't know if I belong in this because I'm not, I wouldn't I wouldn't classify, classify myself as a textbook alcoholic. But we were going through it and she was like, well, did you experience the, you know, using one, one substance and trying to substitute it for another? It's like, check. Okay, well, did you, you know... Did you did you start making compromises with yourself about how you were going to use at what times a bo- check? And it's like I checked all the boxes for what it says in the big book as what would be defined as an alcoholic, and it might be a different substance, but it's still all of the same symptoms of this disease. And so it was. That's just like where I stand in my truth, and you know I still do get. The kind of like the side eyes from people when I share that my DOC is marijuana and that's what broke me that's what sent me to treatment and you know almost I almost lost my mind like I was three days away from (laughs) this my therapist told me in pinnacle he said if by day three you haven't calmed down i'm I need to refer you to a higher level of care where they can go and sedate you because I don't know what to do we We don't have a more the resources. medical
1: intervention because your body was breaking down, yeah. yeah, yeah,
3: so
2: now, how long do you have under your sobriety belt?
3: I have as of yesterday, I checked today I have twenty one months
2: congratulations very good, Thank you. very good Thank that's you. excellent. Yeah. so what does life look like
3: for you now? Oh, life is Life is a trip, sober. It's amazing. <laughs> it's like all I'll, the things. I'll co-sign that all yeah, day long. It's, it's it, incredible. It's a
2: trip. It's amazing. It's wonderful.
3: Yes. It's all the things that I never thought.
2: It would be. Po- yeah.
3: Possible. Like, I, I like, find... Like, when you guys have
2: fun being sober? Yeah. I, I have yeah. so
3: much fun sober. Like, but, I'll go out with my sober friends and we're like, people must look at us and think that we are wasted. Because we're just like <laughs> laughing and having the best time and just being goofy and...
1: You're feeling real joy. Yeah. Yeah.
3: Absolutely. And not to say that it's it's like that all the time. I've definitely had...
1: Ups and downs.
2: Ups
3: and downs. Some serious ups and downs, like the long-term relationship ending. It was a down, but working through having the skills to now manage those hardships where before I got sober, they would just decimate me. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I remember I had an issue with my motor on my window. This is before I got sober and it kept on collapsing on itself. And it just, I thought the world was going to end because of that. I didn't know what I was going to do. Car troubles were too much. Yeah. And, I was having a lunch with my mom and she just looked at me she's like I'm I don't I'm not dealing with this like you, you go figure it out. And now it's like I have stuff like that come up all the time and it's just, you know.
1: So the difference I think is when a person is in their substance abuse, mm-hmm. they're fragile. Yeah. They're they're mentally and emotionally fragile, they're physically fragile. When you are in recovery, you're resilient. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what you're describing. Like you look resilient, you sound resilient, you can <laughs> handle The curveballs, because life still gets hard. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. But now you've got, like you said, the skills, the tools to, to handle it. And that resilience makes a person optimistic. Like, hey, I can do even more.
2: Yeah. I think not only is she optimistic, she radiates joy. I mean, you you look at her, and you really do radiate. I mean, it's, it's, it's that Thank smile. You. you just go, it's infectious. I go, it's it's like when Harry met Sally. I want what she's having. Yeah,
4: <laughs> you know what I mean.
2: Well, that, well, okay, but, but does that make sense? Yes, yes. You know I, I, mean? I, I want like, some too. Yeah, I mean, because it, you just seem so happy. And it's such a joy to have you. And I'm glad life is doing wonderful for you because you. you deserve all
1: the happiness. Share with us, for the listeners, mm-hmm. just what's, it it doesn't have to be groundbreaking, but what's something you rely on pretty regularly, daily or regularly, that just helps you maintain this
3: Oh, this, I know this. Uh, i knocked knock this answer out of the park because it's at, like 100% FTR. Fit to Recover has given me so much and... My sobriety, it's where I met all of my friends, it's where I make most of my connections, it's where I find opportunities of service. You know, it's the community there is unlike anything else. And like. if you
2: don't know what FDR is, it's fit to recover. Uh, we've, we've had, had him. him on the show, Ian. Ian Acker. Yep. Uh, he's amazing. And not yep. only do they have one in Salt Lake, they now have one in uh, Utah County as well. Yeah,
3: Orem. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so I mean, a lot of of our guests have came uh, on the podcast through Fit to Recover. And when I was at Pinnacle, that was my first introduction to him. And we'd go there on Sunday. Yep. Get a good yep. workout. Circle up I know
3: exactly, Vicky. Vicki's yep. Vicky's my girl. She.
2: So you found your community the then?
3: Yeah, I I feel like I've found purpose and a place where I can fit in just just to be myself I can show up in any in any capacity I could be on top of the moon happy smiling I could also show up and be like you know what I just just really need connection today and I know I'm gonna find it there regardless of what class or
1: you did knock that answer out of the park because finding community and purpose and uh, having that support I think is 100% what people
2: need
3: Mm -hmm. to do
1: yeah yeah well we're proud of you thank you for
2: coming
3: on and sharing
1: your story today
2: uh dr matt any takeaways just i want to be happy like uh catlin is i do too yeah (laughs) hey thank you for stopping by and listening to project recovery in case you forgot ksl uh project recovery is what
1: i think you gave it away but it's a ksl podcast yeah addictable (laughs) it's addictable yeah
4: (laughs) KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.
0: I'm Dave Colley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985.